بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم لیڈیز اینڈ جینٹلمین السلام علیکم اینڈ ویلکم ٹو دا سکس ایپیزوڈ آف دا پاکستان جیو اسٹریٹجک ریویو پوڈ کاسٹ ود یور ہوسٹ زکی خالد بفور آئی بگن آئی لائک ٹو انٹرمیٹ مائی لسنرس دیٹ ڈیو ٹو ریسورس کنسٹرینٹس اینڈ دا فیکٹ دیٹ مائی ساؤنڈ کلاؤڈ پریمیم اکاؤنٹ فار وچ آئی واز پیئنگ این اماؤنٹ is not receiving the traction which I was initially hoping for, I have decided to discontinue it temporarily. Uh, I might uh, continue uploading uh, the episodes over there if I, if, uh, I receive um, some significant feedback from there. So in the meantime, uh, the listeners connected to Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc., uh, your Uh, listening will remain uninterrupted, inshallah. We begin with uh, the Indian Ocean region where India has been actively engaged in humanitarian assist- assistance and disaster relief activities. Uh, recently, the uh, over the past week, um, four people in Maldives were tested positive for measles and gradually um, the Maldivian health officials they suspected that an outbreak of measles was imminent so they immediately issued an SOS a call for help because uh, being a tiny island nation with uh, limited resources and health facilities um, Maldives relies extensively on external aid for such situations India was um, very quick to respond to this call for help. The Ministry of External Affairs and the Ministry of Health jointly uh, prioritized the production of uh, 30,000 vaccines for measles. Um, uh, so 30,000 doses of measles and rubella vaccine were developed and uh, shipped off to Maldives. And it's worth mentioning that uh, in June 2019, the Indian and Maldives government signed an MOU on health cooperation. Now, whatever uh, usual exchanges were taking place, this uh, um, development is significant because to provide uh, uh, this amount of uh, uh, vaccination uh, in such short time and indicates that uh, for Maldives at least, that India is very much willing to partner with it and uh, prove as a resourceful backup whenever needed. And that is essentially the sort of soft power which can effectively win the hearts and minds of a target country for generations to come. So this, um, this for India is a major soft power victory. And along similar lines, but in the domain of disaster relief, The island nation of Madagascar was hit by a violent cyclone which generated flash floods. Uh, more than 92,000 people have been affected. Uh, India here again uh, deployed uh, Indian Navy ship Airavat, uh, which went to Madagascar via seashells, uh, carrying five pallets each of victualing, clothing and naval stores, including three pallets of medicine. And... Um, This uh, initiative was dubbed as part of Modi's uh, Sagar vision. So Sagar is not just the uh, Sanskrit word which means sea. Sagar is also an acronym, S-A-G-A-R, security and growth for all in the region. And this project Sagar 
it's not just um, uh, a blue water economy project but it includes um, HDR activities and this signaling to Madagascar is especially important given the fact that uh, Western Indian Ocean is for New Delhi a zone of uncontested superiority as far as the maritime domain awareness and hegemony is concerned uh, and the upcoming uh, uh, Indo-US uh, maritime partnership in the region is heavily going to be focused on the Western Indian Ocean as highlighted in previous podcasts and also my research paper for the CSCR in Islamabad which I hope you must have read. Uh, in that broader context uh, these um, HDR uh, initiatives in the Western Indian Ocean come as uh, interesting depictions of India's persistence to um, ensure that soft power initiatives work in parallel with its um, um, security cooperation initiatives uh, with Indian Ocean littorals. And this goes a long way and uh, this is something which Pakistan should seriously look into. Uh, I was recently reading a report that uh, Pakistan's Chief of Naval Staff Admiral Zafar Mahmood Abbasi was on a visit to Sri Lanka and uh, reportedly he has pledged uh, cooperation in uh, counter-narcotics and uh, human smuggling including uh, the setting up of a, a library at a National Defense College. So these are also soft power initiatives, these are naval diplomatic initiatives but um, when you come in handy for a country which is affected by especially, especially disaster relief, uh, disasters and that is what proves as a most potent message of support for the country and it goes a long way into forging close ties. Pakistan should seriously look into HDR activities and should be on standby because uh, we need we need friends in the Western Indian Ocean and if we are not able to provide any um, health related or financial support the, the least we could do is our Navy has extensive experience in um, disaster relief and um, they have they are well trained to carry out such uh, undertakings and this is something which the Navy could be effectively used for coming now to the next subject which is uh, the concerns around MCC in Nepal in my previous podcast I gave a brief overview about what the MCC Millennium Challenge Corporation is it's basically a project of the US Congress uh, which functions independently separately from the US Agency uh, for International Development which functions under the US State Department. So this is a Congress-led initiative, uh, the both parties. So um, the MCC uh, is willing to grant $500 million, essentially half a billion dollars to the Nepali government to develop electricity transmission projects and a road maintenance project. Now the issue is that uh, uh, barring a few opposition parties which you might expect um, this issue of uh, approving the MCC grant and um, is being debated and facing opposition within the ruling party in Nepal which is the Nepal Communist Party NCP um, fringe parties in Nepal have already labeled the US as I quote an imperialist force unquote um, uh, the party chair of NCP and the 
Prime Minister concurrently, K.P. Sharma Oli, and the Foreign Minister Pradeep Kumar Gayawali both favor the MCC and uh, they're known to be uh, pro-India as well in the larger context. Um, and they're actually looking forward to a swift uh, approval and implementation of MCC projects. Uh, whereas uh, the, uh, the party's another influential leader, Bhim Rawal, he objected to some of the conditions under MCC and uh, he along with a few others in the party, they believe that uh, this grant is going to uh, bring out favors for the US Indo-Pacific strategy. So they uh, fear that uh, approval of the MCC is a, a one of the steps to contain China. Some even fear that the MCC aims to block China's cross-border railway line. So that's where the uh, project for road maintenance, the issues around that come to the fore. And uh, a while after that, Prime Minister Oli said that uh, he was actually fed up uh, with the divisions in his own party and he said he tried to persuade them that there was no need to link the MCC with the Indo-Pacific strategy as in his words, quote, two different things, unquote. But uh, you must remember that um, in my previous podcast, I mentioned that about um, U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asia, Alice Wells, and um, the National Security Council official, Lisa Curtis, when um, they visited the Rajapaksas in Sri Lanka. In the so they were also trying to push for the early approval of MCC. Now, interestingly, the Rajapaksas in Sri Lanka and the um, Oli regime in Nepal, because of uh, um, influential leaders uh, causing resistance, uh, both are still debating on whether or not this grant should be approved. And I think uh, this ex um, reflects um, political and geopolitical, especially maturity on the part of these two countries, or lesser known countries, or less influential countries, because they are aware that um, this could send wrong signals to China. Now, uh, one is personally not aware about the actual technicalities and the conditionings which will be emplaced in uh, exchange for uh, receiving that grant. But uh, bearing in mind that uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch and when the US is offering grants, then uh, it is almost always in exchange for certain favors which might not bode well for other partner nations and allies and uh, Nepal in particular is not in a position to upset China being the immediate uh, country adjacent to it and uh, Sri Lanka for its part uh, during the tough times the Rajapaksas were supported uh, without any interruption by the uh, Communist Party of China and they owe them a lot of favors and they still um, have some issues with continuous grilling by the US and European authorities about alleged war crimes against the LTTE and the Tamil community. So um, if it's MCC, if the benefits of um, availing MCC grants overweigh upsetting China, then I for one can um, reasonably assume and proffer that um, they're going to not consider it. But at the end of the day, we must remember that the Nepali leadership, especially Prime Minister Oli, he is 
uh, under significant Indian influence and uh, he might be careless enough to go ahead with the proposal unless we actually see that democracy is in place in Nepal and the party is able to resist American pressure. And the choice of the country is also interesting. So if Nepal and Sri Lanka, they were selected long before the Indo-Pacific strategy came into place. But in the current context, all such investments should be viewed through that prism. And it is very mature on uh, the, the NCP's part that they have looked into it. Coming to the third subject, uh, US President Donald Trump's Middle East peace plan. Um, I've gone through the detailed document and for those of you who haven't, it's a good read. Um, there are a lot of points which are debatable, but in my personal opinion, uh, this is strictly a personal opinion, a lot of the points make sense. Although uh, some of the core points around uh, um, the zonal management, etc., uh, it is, an, um, well, not surprisingly in favor of uh, Israel. and. Uh, but when you look at uh, strictly from a pragmatic uh, lens and then if you're looking for a solution which could somehow accommodate both the Israelis and the Palestinians then uh, this is something which is at least uh, better than what uh, previous American administrations have put to the fore and this includes the Clinton administration, the Obama administration and uh, I for one find that uh, whoever drafted this document, uh, they haven't kept a lot of uh, um, socio-cultural sensitivities and religious sentiments into view. But on an overall, uh, I think the motive has been sincere and I say this with a lot of responsibility. I've uh, read each and every page but um, since the purpose of this podcast is to uh, look at it from a uniquely Pakistan lens. Now, obviously, the first thing you'd be thinking about is Pakistan has nothing to do and it doesn't really bother itself. It doesn't even recognize Israel. Well, for now, it doesn't. And uh, whether or not Pakistan recognizes Israel is not going to change the fact that uh, any uh, dynamic in West Asia caused or related to Israel, uh, we can't assume that it won't have any impact on Pakistan. It will. Because obviously, if, for example, I start with some of the points, some salient points which I believe have uh, the potential to cause direct implications for Pakistan. So we'll have to be mindful of that. Uh, so, uh, so these are some of the selected salients which I've extracted from the peace plan document. It says that approximately 97% of Israelis in the West Bank will be incorporated into contiguous Israeli territory and approximately 97% of Palestinians in the West Bank will be incorporated into contiguous Palestinian territory. The State of Israel will retain its sovereignty over territorial waters which are vital to Israel's security and which provide stability to the region. So they've, from a geostrategic uh, point of view, they've made it sure that uh, the control of the waterways is going to remain with Tel Aviv. And it says that beyond its borders, the state of Palestine will have high-speed transportation links such as the West Bank-Gaza connection and until such time as the state of Palestine may develop its own port, access to two designated port facilities in the state of Israel will be ensured. So Haifa and Arstod. So uh, the document says that in the future, the 
the state of Palestine if this peace plan is approved this is all a, a hypothetical argument if a state of Palestine does come into existence alongside Israel according to the two-state solution then the Palestinians may be allowed to set up a port but again it says that um, the territorial uh, oversight will remain with Israel so how that is going to work about I find it uh, unclear and one of the most important points the sensitive points is that the state of Israel and the state of Palestine should enter into I quote an access agreement to ensure freedom of access to and prayer rights at all religious sites within the state of Palestine and the state of Israel a list of such holy sites should be compiled during negotiations between the parties unquote all right well there's nothing controversial in that now this is a point which is going to be debated for a long time to come I quote Jerusalem should be internationally recognized as the capital of the state of Israel now that doesn't make sense for me I mean the entire uh, headquarters of the Mossad the Prime Minister office uh, the Israel Defense Forces the Knesset which is the Parliament all of that is situated in Tel Aviv all diplomatic missions are present over there this is going to be a huge huge logistics decision if Jerusalem is approved as the capital of the state of Israel but anyways and this must have been an Israeli proposal anyways and it says that Al-Quds or another name selected by the state of Palestine should be internationally recognized as the capital of the state of Palestine unquote um, where is that going to be Al-Quds is within Jerusalem so are you going are they going to divide Jerusalem into two lines are they going to specifically carve Al-Quds within Jerusalem how is that going to happen the technicalities have been discussed so they've just mentioned it and they've left it for unclear and it says in the next point I quote the embassy of the US to the state of Israel will remain in Jerusalem following the signing of the Israeli Palestinian peace agreement the embassy of US to state of Palestine will be in Al-Quds at a location to be chosen by the US in agreement with the state of Palestine unquote so in Jerusalem technically on an overall there will be two US diplomatic missions one in main Jerusalem and one in the Al-Quds area now obviously you can't expect Al-Quds to be away from the Al-Aqsa mosque or the uh, Qubba the Sahra so that's going to be there unquote now this is an important point from the security point of view I quote the United States recommends the establishment of a RSC regional security committee to review regional counterterrorism policies and coordination ideally the RSC would include security representatives from the US the state of Israel the state of Palestine the Hashimi Kingdom of Jordan the Arab Republic of Egypt the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the UAE United Arab Emirates unquote so apart from the triangular framework the US uh, Israel and Palestine um, there are four Arab countries which have been included in the process to ensure friendly relations and those are Jordan Egypt Saudi Arabia and the UAE I'll tell you why this is important you have to note that Jordan all these countries none of them are supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood none of them are supportive of Hamas and uh, unlike Iran uh, 
which has been consistently supportive of Hamas and uh, believes in a militaristic approach uh, toward uh, resistance. And uh, Jordan is a very friendly toward the US and also has cordial relations with Israel. Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, they have a very strong bond in North African and Middle Eastern affairs in general. And uh, you know what's interesting? Another interesting point is that all of these four countries, these Arab countries, Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia and UAE, none of them include Turkey because Turkey isn't number one an Arab country and for the fact that Turkey has its own different geostrategic paradigm and it's not part of this block which comprises of these four Arab countries so uh, in the long term you are aware that uh, these four Arab countries Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia and UAE they are going to be pro-Israel they won't cause any issues but uh, ideally Turkey should have been included but it has been excluded now how does Turkey view that well um, President Erdogan is definitely snubbed it has been reported and he has uh, um, in fact uh, criticized this uh, peace plan and not only because Erdogan said so but because Turkey represents a unique and distinct uh, majority Sunni entity in the Islamic world in the Muslim world at large and the fact that it has not been included despite being an, uh, a close neighbor and uh, having cordial relations with both Palestine and Israel um, and being an important NATO member, it raises some concerns. And it shows that uh, a large, to a, a large extent this document prepared by President Trump has been influenced by uh, specifically the GCC power blocks. Now, if you expect uh, a larger, broader framework of shared responsibilities, then Turkey at least, if not Iran, then Turkey at least should have been included in the process. Because Turkey is not supporting any militaristic movements as Iran is. So why was it excluded? We need to keep note of that. Now, uh, the next point is very important. It actually comes to one of the core reasons of initiating this so-called peace plan. It says that the state of Israel, the state of Palestine and the Arab countries will work together to counter Hezbollah, that is obviously we know Iran, ISIS, Daesh, I have no idea why ISIS is being discussed in Israel and Palestine, they don't exist there. Hamas, again Iran, uh, and it says in the brackets, in parentheses, if Hamas does not reorient in accordance with the Gaza criteria and all other terrorist groups and organizations as well as other extremist groups, unquote. So basically, yes, you, if you read my mind, you read it correct. This is not just the exclusion of Turkey, but the isolation and exclusion of Iran. This is a complete Arab or specifically a GCC-led takeover of Palestine so even if a state of Palestine is formed it's going to be completely subjugated and influenced by the uh, GCC power blocks um, in particular Saudi Arabia uh, the UAE Jordan and lastly Egypt uh, because there is also the recurring problem of uh, terrorists posing problems for Egyptian security forces through the Sinai Peninsula Israel has been uh, fed up with that and the Egyptians as well and that problem persists so um, in the Red Sea 
if you can get an understanding of what this regional security committee will be the framework so um, Egypt you start from the left Egypt go down through the Red Sea Saudi Arabia UAE and Jordan up north so all four countries surrounding Turkey but Turkey itself is not part of the process where does that leave Turkey and Turkey has absolutely genuine reasons to be concerned about we could to a certain extent agree that uh, Iran's need not um, further promote uh, Quds force initiatives in Palestine because ultimately when you want to sit on the table you have to agree to a complete ceasefire and militaristic resistance should be discouraged for long-term peace and stability at one point uh, there will be no justification for taking up arms so we need to look into this that what the implications will be because if this continues uh, and coming to the next point the last point which I've extracted from the document which I find to be interesting I quote the state of Israel is not a threat to the region whatsoever well that's a rhetoric and no I'm sure that not a lot of Muslim countries are going to take that seriously especially Iran economic conditions and Iran's malign activities however pose an existential threat to many of the region's states well this is actually uh, this is Israel and the GCC countries talking if you can read between the lines and I continue I quote integrating Israel into the region will allow it to assist across a wide range of economic challenges as well as counter the threats of Iran unquote well whatever takes place if this peace plan whatever it is it gets approved and even if a state of Palestine comes into existence and the people are finally relieved to have a permanent solution to this conflict and this injustice that will keep nonetheless Tehran on its toes and when Tehran is on its toes that is directly going to impact not just the Arab countries the Strait of Hormuz but also Pakistan and the fact that Turkey has been also excluded which is an important partner of Pakistan Turkey is going to raise its voice and we could witness closer Turkey Iran collaboration to find out a way to morally support the Palestinians and uh, this is actually a discreet acknowledgement of the fact that Israel and Jordan Saudi Arabia Egypt and the UAE are on the same page I wouldn't necessarily say that Jordan is completely on the same page because Jordan has its own independent foreign policy making and it's quite distinct from the from Egypt and the KSA in the UAE but uh, if this goes through and obviously Pakistan has its own fraternal relations with Saudi Arabia and um, we have for example a situation in which a retired Pakistan army chief General Rahil Sharif retired who leads the Islamic military counter-terrorism coalition imagine a scenario in which the IMCDC is told that it is going to represent collectively as the so-called Muslim countries uh, collective representation with boots on the ground in the state of Palestine including a mandate to curb support for Hamas and Hezbollah which are proxy assets of the Iranian regime that is going to directly incur consequences for Pakistan not just at the operational level but also at the strategic level because that would directly promote tensions and create frictions in a region which cannot afford another standoff as already witnessed 
uh, a few weeks and months ago in the Strait of Hormuz. And the last thing one wants is selective participation for a negotiated settlement. Um, you see, you can debate all you want about whether or not Iran should be made part of the process, but it still doesn't justify why Turkey has been excluded and that sends the wrong signals to the larger Muslim world. Um, and talking from Pakistan's point of view, uh, one finds it extremely disturbing and we have seen Qatar and Malaysia express their support for Turkey. So obviously the other Muslim countries which are not in Africa and the Middle East such as in uh, South and Southeast Asia, they are um, they're definitely going to look at it through a critical lens. And frankly, um, at the end of the day, this document is merely uh, uh, an, uh, you can say a repeat or of um, rhetoric by the Arabs. I don't even consider this a repeat of Israeli rhetoric. This is more of a repeat of Arab rhetoric. This is Arab policy making and I find absolutely nothing wrong in bringing Arabs to the table. But the Arabs are not the only ones who are going to decide just on the basis of uh, ethnicity or language that they are going to decide the future of the state of Palestine. We all have been affected including Pakistan and Pakistan feels strongly and this should be a broader Muslim world led process not just four countries uh, that should not be encouraged at all. Coming to the next point Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has decided to appoint a political replacement in place of the outgoing High Commissioner Harinder Sidhu who is about to leave New Delhi and uh, the person he has appointed is um, the former Premier uh, known as the Chief Minister of New South Wales Barry O'Farrell. Um, the uh, Chief Minister of New South Wales is uh, officially titled as a Premier. So O'Farrell, Barry O'Farrell was the former Premier of New South Wales and he is not a diplomat, he is a political uh, personality, he has remained a special trade envoy for several successive uh, NSW governments, he was himself the Premier once. He was uh, Deputy Chair of the Australia India Council and North, South and New South Wales special envoy to India. In 2013, uh, after a meeting with then Chief Minister Modi, O'Farrell forged a, I quote, sister state relationship, unquote, between New South Wales and Gujarat, when Modi was the CM of Gujarat, and incidentally the same point when Muslims were massacred, basically. He was a key supporter of Indian investment in Australia, including the Adani Group's Carmichael Coal Mine Project. So far, um, it has the Adani group has invested two billion dollars into the Queensland project. So um, a lot of uh, financial stakes are involved by Indian groups into New South Wales and this is where um, the New South Wales government strongly feels and it has actually positive uh, successfully influenced um, Canberra to appoint a political person so that these uh, projects continue unabated despite some environmental concerns and some other uh, humanitarian issues but um, I was compiling a brief profile of uh, Barry O'Farrell who is expected to take charge in New Delhi sooner or later. Um, interestingly, um, O'Farrell was New South uh, Wales's special envoy for India in 2016 and before that when he was a premier in 2012, 
O'Farrell and his deputy premier, Andrew Stoner, they picked India as the partner country for CBIT Australia, C-E-B-I-T. Now, CBIT Australia is the Asia-Pacific's largest ICT business event, which is held in Sydney. And uh, O'Farrell has been consistently supportive of uh, closer relations with India because he, believe he is actually personally fascinated by Indian culture and uh, historical traditions. And it is the uh, lucrative prospects of increased Indian investments in Australia and not just the other way around which uh, promises uh, increased popularity and political support for the future if he, you know, this is uh, something I've assessed if he decides to contest for leadership, national leadership in Australia in the future. So you need to make friends and these are the steps which uh, Barry O'Farrell is taking to secure some good votes through economic prosperity in his home province at least, New South Wales. Uh, in 2011, now this is some research, uh, uh, specifically in 2011 during an official trade tour of India, then Premier New South Wales O'Farrell held meetings with Tata Group, close to the Modi regime, Jindal Steel and Power, we all know who the Jindal Group is led by, very close to the BJP, ESR and Godrej Group. He also launched the Australian Centre for Finance and Regulation in Mumbai, including the Australia-India Youth Dialogue. So we can see that since 2011 onward, almost uh, more than a decade actually, Barry O'Farrell has been directly involved in prospects to increase um, uh, Indo-Australia collaboration and coordination. And his appointment indicates that previously already the existing High Commissioner, the outgoing High Commissioner, Harinder Sidhu, she was of Indian origin. And this, you appoint envoys of that uh, host country when you really want to improve ties. And this is actually, this political appointment is slated to improve Australia-India political coordination, which is necessary for uh, the larger shared interests in the Indo-Pacific and what Australia could really use right now is a strong political representation in Australia adequate enough to foster better understanding with the members of the Quad uh, for the containment of China and so in that process having personal relations with uh, Prime Minister Modi since 2011 Barry O'Farrell seems like the most logical choice for New Delhi and this is a very th well thought out move by uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison of Australia. Coming to the last segment, recently Japan's Defence Minister Taro Kono revealed during a parliamentary briefing that apart from a maritime self-defence force vessels deployment in the Persian Gulf, a liaison officer who is known as Rinraku Khan has already started working at headquarters U.S. Naval Forces Central Command, NAVCENT, which is headquartered in Bahrain. Effective 16th Jan. So, um, it's been more than a week that the Japanese liaison officer has been posted there. Amidst Gulf tensions, Kono clarified that uh, this liaison officer is only there for information gathering purposes. Japan has a, a high number of LOs, LNOs who are posted across the world. 
We have a Japanese liaison officer at Headquarters U.S. Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii at, at the U.S. Special Operations Command in Florida at NATO Headquarters in Brussels the NATO Maritime Command in the UK, etc. So the addition of NAVSINT for Pakistan in particular is quite interesting. Um, it must be noted that the Japanese are very careful to consistently reiterate that he is uh, the officer appointed is just a liaison officer because the Japanese Constitution's Article 9 still binds military personnel to abide by itaika. Now this is a Japanese term or concept which loosely refers to the process of becoming one or integrating into a whole. It prohibits uh, Japanese military personnel from integrating into any command and control structure or operational force structure where foreign militaries operate. So they can have their liaison officers who are there for just for representation purposes or supervision or information gathering but they are not allowed at any cost to participate in any sort of operational activities whatsoever. Uh, it's worth noting that in May 2017, so this is some personal research, in May 2017 then Japanese Parliamentary Vice Minister of Defense Hiroyuki Miyazawa visited the command of Combined Maritime Forces led by at that time Vice Admiral Kevin Donegan at NAVSINT. He discussed Japan's involvement in the CMF and uh, uh, he after that during the same tour he visited uh, com uh, Combined Task Force 151 which was at that time led by a Japanese officer Rear Admiral Tatsuya Fukuda and they engaged in anti-piracy ops so it has nothing to do with any sort of posturing. Uh, the interesting thing is that um, this might seem like a sudden development but this was in place uh, before the Indo-Pacific um, strategy properly emerged. So one shouldn't uh, necessarily link it with that. In July 2007, this is why, in July 2007, the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Forces Chief of Naval Operations, who is known as the Chief of Maritime Staff, at that time Admiral Eiji Yoshikawa, he met with NAFSENT Chief, Vice Admiral Kevin Cosgriff, and he visited installations including the Coalition Coordination Center and the Combined Maritime Force Component Command where a Japanese representative was participating. So that was 13 uh, so that was almost 13 years ago. And at that preliminary meeting 13 years ago, uh, NAFSEN Chief Vice Admiral Cosgriff, he said that, I quote, strengthening relationships with our allies is fundamental to our success in the region. We are proud of our long-standing ties and friendship with the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force and look forward to a productive relationship for years to come." Unquote. And well, when it comes to analysis and looking in hindsight, he was right because what he foresaw was a closer collaboration with the Japanese in regional waters. Now as we gradually see that the uh, Indo-Pacific strategy has come to the fore, there is an important um, security aspect to all of this. You have to bear in mind that while the US has been based in Bahrain in regional waters since long and uh, Australia already has a liaison officer at NAVSENT, Japan has just recently joined and last year the Indian government 
decided that it was going to appoint its naval representative at NAVSENT. Now, as per recent reports, uh, no one has actually taken charge at NAVSENT yet. And the US had already approved that. But if the Indian naval liaison person at NAVSENT is named, then for Pakistan, effectively, and also China in a larger perspective, all four members of the Quad, now you have to note this point, all four members of the Quad have essentially reached the Arabian Sea. So while NAVSINT is the US base over there, the host, we have Australia already present there, Japan has just joined, and India is very sooner or later going to have its own naval officer over there. And Admiral retired Arun Prakash of the, the former Indian Navy chief, he was very ambitious about this because all of this was taking place in his watch, this decision to appoint a naval officer at NAVSINT. So all four Quad members, US, India, Japan, Australia, they are going to have a representation in Bahrain. And as far as Pakistan and China are concerned, this is the Quad right near CPEC. And it's ludicrous to even suggest that there is going to be a conspiracy by the Quad to sabotage CPEC. I'm not the sort of person who tends to peddle rhetoric or make unsubstantiated assertions. But the point is that while the U uh, India and US are going to uh, attempt dominance in the Western Indian Ocean, um, they are going, uh, the presence of a Quad in Bahrain is going to pose consequences for the um, commercial shipping and maritime trade through the maritime silk route and Chinese development work in Africa etc and uh, this necessarily sends the wrong signals this is just going you're adding too many cooks to the broth basically I mean um, why is Japan interested to come at NAVSENT except to keep an eye on China's activities in the regional waters especially Djibouti and Pakistan doesn't make sense but then again Japan and India have their own geostrategic and geoeconomic project the Asia Africa growth corridor in East Africa and which is going to link up to the entire African continent so in that perspective uh, Pakistan's leadership needs to be aware the Quad has almost completely set its foothold in Bahrain and what can Pakistan do about it well uh, before I end this episode I would encourage you to re uh, read a recent uh, article which I wrote for Islamabad based Center for Strategic and Contemporary Research it's titled extending Pakistan's maritime presence through artificial islands I have presented a novel idea through which Pakistan's re, uh, acquired extended continental shelf can be utilized for land reclamation purposes, especially um, some a process through which we could increase counter value targets um, in the Arabian Sea and set extended footholds for maritime surveillance and reconnaissance to keep a tab on such uh, uh, activities in the region and be mindful of the threats we could face not just from the security angle but also the geoeconomic angle in the future 
so japan and australia all the way from the pacific they've come australia has been here at napsin since long so india is about to set foot it's time for pakistan not just to be mindful of the quad's presence uh, the imminent quad presence in bahrain but also the fact that pakistan has to encourage similar presence uh, we could encourage the uh, deputation of a liaison officer of pakistan at uh, the pla southern theater command or uh, along similar lines if we talk from the us relations with the us pakistan should uh, discuss with washington uh, the possibility of appointing a naval liaison person at the us indo pacific command if not that because there isn't a proper uh, naval forces uh, command in africa they all coordinate through europe so pakistan should at least find a quid pro quo in all of this with the us this must not be tolerated so this is it for episode 6 of the pakistan geostrategic review podcast thank you for tuning in and i would encourage you if you have any suggestions or feedback uh, please tweet them to my uh, official handle the pgr the pgr podcast handle or you could also email me at pak geostrategic review@protonmail.com thank you very much assalamu alaikum